Our text today is awkward and uncomfortable. It's the story of a man who sees his father naked, his every ugly imperfection exposed. Ham's father, Noah, like many of our esteemed heroes, is not without his flaws, and they are on full display here. He's drunk, he's naked, and he's passed out. It's all rather undignified, but sometimes the naked truth needs to be seen rather than covered up. A reading from the book of Genesis 9, 18 to 27, and Mark 8, 36. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. And for Mark, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> my mother was preparing dinner one evening when a hand smashed through the glass of the back door. She screamed, naturally, as she watched that hand feel for the lock. She might have struck it with the knife she still held in her white-knuckled grip. She'd been chopping vegetables. She was paralyzed with fear. She watched as the lock turned. The door flew open, and a young black man, maybe 16 years old, slumped onto the kitchen floor, bruised and bloody and barely conscious. I'm sorry, he choked, tears and blood streaming down his face. To my mother's credit, despite being a rather nervous woman, she didn't call the police. 
I suppose her maternal instincts kicked in, or maybe it was just human decency. But she dropped the knife and ran to his side. Throwing one arm around his shoulder, she used all of her strength to help him to his feet. My mother is a small woman, mind you, five foot one and a half, 100 pounds soaking wet. And she dragged him to the sofa in the living room. Using a wet washcloth, rubbing alcohol and some bandages, she did her best to tend his wounds as he tried to explain what had happened. His name was Mo Bartell, a classmate of my older brother, as it turns out. And he'd been part of a local gang initiation that had gone too far. You see, when he showed up, the other guys proceeded to surround Mo and beat him senseless with baseball bats. I don't know if they wanted to see how much he could take or if they'd never intended to let him join in the first place. But either way, Mo realized this was a bad idea, that he'd made a terrible mistake and somehow managed to escape. And fleeing from his assailants, he ran through the neighborhood, up our driveway toward the backyard, broke the glass of the door around back, and let himself in, seeking refuge. Now for my part, coming home a couple of hours later to find the broken glass on the floor and the bloodstains on the living room couch, I was astounded by this story. I suppose it was the first time I realized how dangerous the world really is. Not so much for a guy like me, but rather for people of color who have to navigate an entirely different reality. Like a lot of white Americans, I had believed in the usual myths about race, namely that slavery ended 200 years ago, that the civil rights movement tied up any loose ends, and that everyone today was more or less born with the same opportunities and privileges that we live in an equal society with liberty and justice for all. Those lies were shattered that day, as surely as the glass on my kitchen floor. A lot of folks still believe that slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, and racial injustice are basically things of the past. That happened so long ago, they'll say, or how long do we have to keep talking about it? What's done is done, or I wasn't even alive back then. I can't be held responsible for what happened 400 years ago. Well, that much is true. No one alive today is responsible for what happened in the 17th century, but that doesn't mean that most of us have not benefited from a legacy of exploitation or that people aren't still being disenfranchised today in very real ways. It's a grim legacy of chattel slavery, land rights, legalized racism, redlining, the war on drugs, the industrial prison complex, and the systematic theft of generational wealth. As a white guy with a lot of privilege, this is hard for me to talk about. I do so humbly and appreciate your grace. No one wants to hear this, I know, but it needs to be heard. First things first, I'm not going to relitigate the gruesome horrors of slavery, often called America's original sin. Of course, the earlier sin being the genocide of the people living here when our 
European ancestors arrived. But it's all in the same economic spirit of colonialism, the plundering of natural resources and the exploitation of human labor for profit. But we all know this. What many don't realize is the extent and the intent of the systematic organized theft that took place after the Civil War and continues today. When the last slaves were emancipated in Texas on June 19, 1865, they were promised 40 acres of land and a mule and a little money to plant their own crops. Over 400,000 acres of land had been set aside for this purpose, giving former slaves the chance to start over. Now, had this actually happened, it would have fundamentally changed the history and future of race relations in America. But it didn't happen. That promise was broken. Just a few months later, after Lincoln was assassinated and Andrew Johnson became president, the order was rescinded. As a result, black folks were put in a bind. They could remain on their plantations, where they were free in name only, or else try to strike out on their own and likely starve to death. Indeed, many hoped that these freed slaves would simply perish. In 1863, one preacher extolled his congregation, like his brother, the Indian of the forest, he must melt away and disappear forever from the midst of us. It's not as though freed slaves could simply find another job. The so-called black codes, state legislation that attempted to legally replicate the conditions of enslavement, severely limited their opportunities. Black folks, for instance, were only allowed to work on a farm or a plantation, where they continued to be exploited because they were not allowed legally to sue whites and thus had no legal recourse. If they were out of work or didn't hold an acceptable job, they could be imprisoned under harsh vagrancy laws and again sent to a plantation or a chain gang, sentenced to forced labor. I cannot emphasize this enough. Wealthy landowners in those days were determined to get free labor come hell or high water because it was ridiculously profitable. Why pay employees? You can make them work for next to nothing. Voting rights for black people were curtailed too, of course, subject to literacy tests and proof of employment and threats of violence, ensuring that former slaves had little or no political power to change things. This is the part that frustrates me so much. For every bit of progress that was made in the struggle for civil rights, measures were taken to stop it. After emancipation, there were the black codes. After the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which desegregated America, it was deemed unconstitutional in 1883 and reversed, which of course gave rise to the Jim Crow era with its segregated schools and restaurants and drinking fountains and buses, to say nothing of the lynching that police turned a blind eye to. After the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was finally enacted, Almost 100 years later, forces again conspired to disenfranchise the black community. The practice of redlining, designating black neighborhoods as hazardous, prevented a whole lot of people from getting mortgages, loans, or insurance. 
This practice proliferated throughout the 20th century. And then there was the so-called war on drugs, which seemed noble on the surface, but John Ehrlichman, an advisor to Richard Nixon, tells a different tale. You want to know what this war on drugs was really all about, he later confessed. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So put it all together, friends, and you realize why black communities are often poorer, why prison populations are disproportionately black, and why young men like Mo Bartel feel compelled to join a gang. It's difficult to overestimate just how much generational wealth has been lost, stolen, really, since the Civil War. If folks had gotten those 40 acres, they could have built farms that generated income. Those estates would have been passed down, giving younger generations the kind of advantages that most of us probably take for granted. And that property would have created equity in both senses of the word, increasing land value and social parity alike. But as it stands, according to the Brookings Institute, for every $100 of wealth held by white households, black households have only $15. And while whites account for 84% of the nation's wealth, blacks account for only 4%. Research has shown that it would take $15 trillion to close that wealth gap. It is important to note, the Brookings study suggests, that these racial and gender, and gender wealth gaps cannot simply be attributed the differences in household saving patterns or cash flow management challenges. Rather, they are the outcome of public policy decisions spanning centuries throughout US history. This disparity is not an accident. Put simply, people of color have been disenfranchised since they first set foot on these shores. In the words of rapper Me Fi Me, who says it so brutally and eloquently, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. How many eyes and teeth do you think I lost? Tell the truth. Again, we were not there when all this horror began, but we're here now, and I can't help but wonder how so-called Christian men convinced themselves that it was morally acceptable to buy and sell human beings, to craft legislation to disenfranchise them, or to warehouse them in ghettos and prisons for political points and profit. And that brings us to our scripture today at last, which apparently gave them all the ethical justification they needed. We probably all know the story of the great Noah, that he built a giant boat, an ark, in ancient times and survived the great flood and repopulated the earth. According to the text, after Noah returns to land, he plants a vineyard and getting drunk one night, Noah falls asleep. 
naked. His son Ham finds him and tells his brothers who throw a blanket over Noah. Noah's so angry about this humiliation that he curses Ham and his seed. Ham's son Canaan, specifically, to be enslaved to the descendants of his brothers. Now, originally, this text was used to justify the genocide of the Canaanites, whom the Israelites exterminated in order to claim their land thousands of years ago. But the 17th century preachers took this a step further, arguing that black skin was the mark of the same curse, the so-called curse of Ham, which also justified slavery and white supremacy. Stop and think about this thesis for just a moment. This wretched history of enslavement and exploitation for profit is supposed to be justified because some guy saw his dad's junk a few thousand years ago. The sheer stupidity and insanity of it boggles the mind. Perhaps those preachers ought to have talked about Jesus instead when he said, what does it profit a man if he gain the world but loses his own soul? I don't know what became of Mo Bartell. My mother called his mother and she came to get him, worried out of her mind. I only know that he did stay in school while he and my brother never spoke about the incident in my kitchen. They'd sometimes see each other in the hallways between classes and Mo would give my brother a small nod of appreciation for my mother's kindness. Small gestures like these can be meaningful. That's why our church has taken on this Royalties for Spirituals project. Every year our church pays about $2,000 for a music license that covers everything we play in worship, ensuring that composers and distributors receive their royalties. But Negro spirituals, and that is the proper nomenclature for this genre of music, were composed by unknown authors in the cotton fields where they toiled endlessly and sang songs of liberation. And those songs, which we sing in church almost every Sunday, are in the public domain. No one has ever been compensated for them. And so as part of a growing movement, we want to pay some of that debt, an equivalent sum, for our other licenses. This is not charity. This is paying a debt for something that we have freely enjoyed for the 162 years of this church's life. It's a small measure, hardly on par with actual reparations, which would include something equivalent to those 40 acres. But it will make a difference, benefiting black youth through a program of the local chapter of the NAACP, the ACTSO, <clears throat> excuse me, the ACTSO program, which stands for the Afro-Academic Cultural, Technological, and Scientific Olympics, gives talented young people the opportunity to compete in their respective fields, including musical performance. Incidentally, the NAACP is also looking for judges uh, for that competition, so let me know if that's something you'd be interested in. Our scholarship, uh, which we intend to raise through a couple of special offerings every year, we'll have our first one on March 17th this year. Our scholarship will pay for one of these students to attend a national competition in Las Vegas and hopefully open some doors to a more promising future. As for the past, it's ugly. 
It's hard to look at. It's easier to cover the truth up as Noah's sons covered up his naked body. But maybe we need to see what really happened. To see the men and women and children owned by the authors of our Constitution and a dozen or so of our presidents. To behold the theft of generational wealth, the corruption, the slavery, the segregation, the lynchings, the exploitation, the greed, the imprisonment, the prejudice, the bullwhip, the naked horror of it all. The broken glass on the kitchen floor and the blood stains on the couch in my own house, a place that always felt safe. But friends, nowhere is safe until we are all safe. No one is free until we are all free. And there is no justice until there is justice for all. Amen.